Hello and welcome to Talking General Practice brought to you by GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, editor of GP Online, and I'm joined by our news editor Nick Bostock. Hello. And senior reporter Luke Haynes. Hiya. Coming up, we'll be discussing the latest news affecting general practice. This week, we'll be talking about face-to-face appointments and the ongoing fallout from NHS England's latest standard operating procedure for general practice, which effectively called on practices to offer in-person appointments for all patients. Later in the podcast, I'll be talking to Dr Sophie Lomley and Dr Adam Thomas, the National Co-Chairs of the Royal College of GPs Associates in Training Committee, about GP training in the pandemic. And finally, we'll be looking at the issue of vaccine hesitancy in ethnic minority communities and highlighting a bit of positive news about this. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. The last couple of weeks have been dominated by the fallout from the new Standard Operating Procedure, or SOP, for general practice issued by NHS England. The final SOP wasn't published until the end of last week, but the week before, NHS England issued a letter telling practices that it would contain new advice about access. This advice included the demand that all patients should be offered face-to-face appointments if they so choose. The timing of the letter was questioned by some because it was issued in the same week that the Daily Telegraph ran a front-page story suggesting that there were problems with patients accessing face-to-face appointments. And in the week after, the Mail on Sunday launched a campaign pushing for GPs to see all patients face-to-face again. So Nick, GPs and other staff in primary care reacted pretty angrily to all of this. Can you explain why that was? Yeah, so GPs just feel they've been hung out to dry, really. In our last podcast, we spoke about the huge amount of work that uh, GP practices are already handling. The GP workforce is smaller than it was a few years ago, but patient numbers are up. Numbers of appointments have spiked because of pent-up demand created by the pandemic. And there's a big shift of work from secondary care into primary care. And now practices are being told to say yes to any patient who wants a face-to-face appointment, irrespective of clinical need. So on the one hand, that takes away their ability to use their judgment to decide which patients actually need to be seen face to face. So it risks adding unnecessarily to workload. But GPs are also furious because this guidance has contributed to criticism in the national media over access to general practice. The fact is, GP practices are operating exactly how they were told to. NHS England advised practices to adopt total triage early on in the pandemic to avoid spreading covid And Matt Hancock said in October that the rapid switch to remote consultations in general practice during the pandemic had been, and I quote, a lifeline for the NHS. It's also important to say that half of all appointments during the pandemic have been in person, and that's not including the millions of contacts that have happened as part of the the COVID vaccination programme. But now GPs are being hammered by some media outlets and they feel this guidance, which the profession wasn't consulted on, just seems to feed that narrative. And um, GPs have also raised questions over how they can possibly make this change safely, given the need to maintain social distancing in often cramped premises and with the rise of the so-called Indian variant of coronavirus in parts of the country. And I think one point in this that's really interesting is that there's arguably never been more direct contact between NHS England and the front line than during the pandemic, with the regular webinars and constant guidance updates and so on. But maybe what this reflects is that it hasn't been enough of a two-way dialogue. Yeah, no, that is an interesting point, isn't it? Because a lot of the anger from GPs has really been about the fact they don't really feel that, that there's been enough um, understanding of what they're actually going through day to day on the front line. I mean, and all this anger loop blew up really in a way when one group of GPs organised a petition calling for NHS England's primary care medical director to resign. What's been going on with that? 
Yeah, that's right. So in the wake of the poorly sort of judged communications from NHS England's, uh, as you say, campaign group, GP Survival, set up a petition calling for Dr. Kanani to resign. And those behind the petition said that the SOP, quote, was inflammatory and insulting. And they also supported false accusations in national press uh, that GPs hadn't been providing face-to-face care or consultations throughout the pandemic. So the calls for Dr. Kanani's resignation really just sort of revolve around the fact that as a GP, practitioners, I guess, were angry that she had put her name to this letter. So in terms of numbers, within the first three days, the petition going live, it reached over a thousand signatures. But then it would be unfair to say that that all GPs wanted Dr. Kanani to go. I know I'd seen a, a few people on Twitter sort of coming out in defence of her. Um, I know one GP said... Nikki has been a great ambassador for the profession through the pandemic, and I was personally saddened to see a letter calling for her resignation. She has represented us well in the media briefings and in the national media. But so less than a week after the petition was launched, it was paused with the group's chair saying um, it had sort of done its job and that it's sort of showing the strength of feeling that was being felt by uh, people on the ground. And sort of shortly after the petition was paused, Dr. Kanani came out herself which was on her Twitter. She said that issues around sort of patient access couldn't be ignored. There was also a line where she said that she would keep doing what I do because everything I do is for the benefit of patients and our profession. So it sort of sounds like she's very much here here to stay. Yeah, well, the BMA have also reacted really angrily, haven't they? Uh, I mean, they wrote to Matt Hancock initially and asked to have a meeting with various demands about what they wanted to see come out of this. But it went further than that, didn't it, Nick? Yeah, so in in terms of what next, we're at a bit of a crossroads. The BMA's GP committee voted last week to suspend talks with NHS England and passed a vote of no confidence in its leadership. So there's some diplomacy to be done on both sides to repair trust. But it does look like we're going to see a fairly defiant stance from much of the profession in that LMCs have pointed out that the guidance has no contractual force. And uh, I think um, GPs would hope that the strength of their reaction to the uh, updated SOP and, you know, particularly perhaps the, the, you know, the petition that Luke's just been talking about uh, will eventually lead to a change of approach from the government and NHS England. One idea that's come up is that there needs to be a concerted media campaign to explain to the public what the pressure in general practice is like and that capacity is limited and with some sensible messages around how to access care and when it's reasonable to do so. Uh, and maybe that is the kind of step that the NHS needs to take just to create a sense that the health service leadership is on the same page and on the same side as staff on the front line in general practice. Well, that is really important, isn't it? Because the current situation really does just run the risk of creating unrealistic expectations of what general practice can actually deliver. And that's no good for GPs or for patients. We've had a few opinion pieces on this topic in recent days on our website, GP Online. There's a particularly good one that's just been published by Dr. Simon Hodes, and we will put the link to that in the podcast description. I'm joined now by Dr. Adam Thomas and Dr. Sophie Lumley, who are the national co-chairs of the Royal College of GPs Associates in Training Committee. So just in case people listening don't know, the Associates in Training or AIT committee, um, you represent GP trainees within the college. So the past 12 to 18 months have been pretty difficult for the whole NHS, but junior doctors have had a really 
tough time. I mean, they've often been right on the front line, working really long days with very little time for studying. And many of their training opportunities have obviously been affected a lot by the way services have had to change to deal with the pandemic. I mean, how has the pandemic impacted on your training? I was actually on uh, an out-of-programme experience year or an UP between my SC2 and SC3 years. So I applied and got a post on the Faculty of Medical Leadership and Management's uh, National Medical Director's Clinical Fellowship. And I was actually at the GMC. And it wasn't until April that I then was in a position to either stay with our organisations and help with COVID critical work or return to um, where we'd been seconded from. So being based up in Shropshire and and mostly in in the Manchester GMC offices, I decided to actually go back to the GP practice that I'd been seconded from. So I went back there four days a week and stayed working from home a day a week at the GMC um, and spent my Fridays actually at a COVID hot site that had been... um, opened in the local football stadium. It was always going to be a bit of a different year for me, but it it sort of changed very dramatically within a couple of weeks. And suddenly I was finding myself as an ST3 a couple of months early um, uh, in, in general practice in a completely new way of operating in general practice that sort of had to almost be brought in overnight. Yeah. What about you, Sophie? How did it affect you? Like I suppose most trainees, it affected me for for good and for bad. Um, I'm an academic trainee um, and there was, like with many academics all across the uh, junior doctor and the qualified doctor sphere, everybody was worried about the impact on their research time because everybody had this awful guilt that they needed to be helping clinically um, but didn't want to lose research funding and research was really important in an emerging pandemic. So I've been working sort of 50-50 clinical academic um, and I've been really lucky that a good thing from the pandemic is I've been able to do my academic time virtually which has saved me a lot of commuting but loses a lot of the social aspects um, of being in an office environment and working with other uh, researchers. Um, The clinical bit is so different from what it was a year ago when I started um, ST3. I think you really skill up on the um, the triage and managing some of the uncertainty and that's a really useful skill going forward but lose some of the confidence with examinations and seeing people face to face and has it been quite common for for GP trainers, particularly when they were in hospital posts, obviously to have been moved away from specialties that might be, you know, more GP relevant and, and moved into the, the very front line on the wards and things with patients? Has that been quite common? But certainly locally, a lot of the GP trainees would, you know, if they were on medicine at the time or they were on um, sort of A&E, that what was what was done locally was it was that there wasn't a progression to the next rotation. So even if that rotation was going to be general practice or whether it was going to be pediatrics, they just wouldn't rotate onto it. So they end up staying where they were for sort of eight months. So in wave one, there was just lo- there was lots of cancelled rotations, but in wave two. The, the deans um, across the country have been really keen to try and protect GP trainees a bit more. And where redeployments have happened, they've tried to make them shorter, time limited, and then have people still rotating into the jobs they were expecting to and and have tried as much as they can, I think, to protect some of the educational time that comes with that. But it's it's just been so enormously variable. If you've got a hospital that's absolutely swamped with COVID, it, you know, it's more, more difficult to justify not redeployment and not redeploying trainees to help. You know, I talk to GP trainers as well a bit. And one of the things that's kind of come across to me from some of those conversations is the kind of the worry or concern about how the move to remote consultations has impacted on GP training. You know, so trainees are obviously seeing less patients face to face than they normally would. And remote consultations are pretty hard, really, especially when you don't have necessarily that background with all of that face to face experience. 
how do you think it might play out longer term? I think it it's difficult to predict whether this is the new normal or whether this is a bit of a mm. blip. And I suppose that really determines the long term impact that this, this has. Um, there's two groups that I particularly worry about. It's ST3s who've had their entire last year uh, of training that's meant to be a real focus in GP affected by the pandemic. But the other group is shielders who a lot of, a lot of which have been working full time from home, but as a consequence of, 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 of social distancing, meaning that they're not seeing any face to face. Um, so I, I think um, remote suits some people. So some people actually really like that, that this triage model where actually they get a bit more um, flexibility in some of the timings for consultation um, and they can choose who, who really does need to come in. Um, and uh, particularly when everybody was at home and furloughed, it was very d- easy to get hold of people when you phoned them. Um, and actually I found a better hit rate picking up follow-ups with my mental health patients because they were at home and by their phone than, than I did with them trying to get them to come into the practice. Um, but certainly there's a lot of people worried about it. And I I'm, think it's more confidence than it is competence. It's that you've spent a whole year doing a lot more phone. You, you won't have forgotten the skills, but your confidence with just being able to assess people face to face drops. And I think that's not just in trainees, that's in all GPs, I think. Um, but it, it depends what, what comes next, because actually, if this is the new normal, then we've had a, a brilliant preparation in ST3 for managing a lot more uncertainty over the phone and and triage first but I suspect it will swing back the other way because actually lots of people um, in the UK like to be seen and there's lots of things that it's more useful and easier to sort out if you see someone Um, and then I think it's a matter of confidence and post-CCT support and and fellowships and all those sorts of things being in a nice supportive practice become much more important um, if you felt like your confidence dropped in ST3 rather than getting to the level it might have been previously. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about was uh, the move to the recorded consultation assessment from the CSA, because obviously that's been a massive change for people who are approaching the end of GP training. I mean, it must have been very, very difficult for people in that batch at the very start of the pandemic when everything changed almost overnight and their CSAs were cancelled. Could one of you explain that in a bit of detail for us? I sat the RCA myself just uh, in, in March, so I'm uh, quite sort of hot off the uh, the press with that. But it's the, the, the college had a massive massive task to undertake to suddenly take this well-established exam that, you know, every trainee in the country made the pilgrimage to London, you know, knew what the setup was, knew that it was sort of the OSCE sort of face-to-face actor patients, examiner in the room, and and knew what to expect. Um, and then suddenly, obviously, it was not any way doable to have people traveling from all over the country to one location and all be sort of, you know, you'd, you'd have the majority of the GP trainee population of the country isolating, I'm sure, by the time you'd, you'd have them all together. So they had to come up with, with a way of delivering an assessment that covered the same kind of domains and tested the same kind of skills, but was able to be done remotely. And the reason it would it needed to be matched the, almost the blueprint of the CSA so closely is because obviously that had been validated over, over the years. They had lots of data um, about how valid the assessment was. Um, and obviously the GMC was happy with it and, and, and all that kind of thing. But in terms of what they look like, they, com- they look completely different on, on, on paper. It almost felt a bit like coursework rather than actually sitting an exam. So you have a period of time that you are collecting recordings. So that can be um, audio recordings. It can be uh, a recording of a video call. It can be a recording of a face-to-face assessment. 
and you have to collect a, a number of these and then submit 13 cases to mandatory criteria. Now, when it first, the, the first batch that did the RCA, it was literally a, a case of get this out as quickly as they can and people were allowed to just submit 13 cases of anything they, they deemed sort of um, suitable. But then, uh, obviously, as, as time went on and, and it became obvious that this assessment was going to need to be around for quite a bit during the, the pandemic to get the amount of people through and CCTing, they brought in some mandatory criteria. So you had to have a certain amount that were paediatric, a certain amount that were sort of, you know, women's health, a certain amount that were mental health. And yeah, that's been a, a completely different kind of stress because lots of us that will have been through medical school are, are pretty aware of how you revise for an OSCE, whereas this felt like it was there sort of hanging over you for quite a long time. And the, the sort of perfectionists amongst us always thinking, well, is there a better case out there that I, I could record? Uh, that did have uh, quite a significant impact actually on training because, well, I can only speak for, for myself, it almost became the only focus for me. So I used to go into work, scan everybody's lists and just see, is there going to be a suitable patient that, that you know, for the ones that I were, was lacking? So the, the other sort of limit on that was that it, so that it matched the sort of CSA blueprint was that you had 10 minutes. But the difference here is that you've got to get a, a real life patient to, to allow you to sort of demonstrate your skills, interpersonal skills, data gathering and clinical management all in 10 minutes. And any GP knows that, that different patients are going to come with, with different agendas and some consultations are going to be much more about data gathering and some consultations are going to be much more about management. But actually fitting it all in while still demonstrating demonstrating your interpersonal skills was actually a really a really tall order and but but actually there's a sense of achievement by the end because you've got this sort of body of work that you submit that that, that is showing you know coverage of the curriculum it's authentic i suppose you know you're you're you're, you're consulting with real life patients and you are recording them in your working environment so in terms of authenticity is the word that, that i'm using it's actually pretty good yeah, I mean, that's the impression I've got from people is it just like like you said, it sounds like it can go on for a really long time just to even find the cases that you need. The RCG have sort of suggested in the past that some elements of this kind of real life consultation might be retained even after the pandemic. I mean, mm. do you think the RCA as it is now is a realistic thing to carry on with long term? Or do you think it needs to have an element of this, maybe the CSA or some kind of more traditional thing plus a, a real life bid? I think there's no such thing as a perfect exam. Um, and there's problems with the CSA and there's problems with the RCA. I think that whilst on the face of it, the RCA looks like a very authentic exam because it's got real patients. Actually, because you're doing this case selection where you're finding the ones who fit into 10 minutes and fit the mandatory criteria, it's a little bit less authentic than, than it perhaps looks on the surface. And there's something nice about standardised patients that means that you know that whatever story they've got, it's designed to be a case that is doable in 10 minutes which takes some of the stress um, and the ownership of, of finding the right cases. Well, we don't know what's going to what's going to come in the future. And I think some people will probably suit the CSA better, like to do a lot of revision, turn up on the day, deliver it, leave again, it not do any more to their training. Uh, some people like the RCA because it takes this sort of exam on the day summative aspect out of it. And actually you get a bit of time to select the cases that you think best um, demonstrate things to you. What we've heard certainly from trainees and and trainers is that whatever comes next needs to be properly piloted and it certainly mustn't be a shock to trainees so there needs to be 
a, a good comms process and people need to be consulted and know when it's coming in so they can prepare. Okay, there's just well, there's one final question I wanted to ask really as well. You know, obviously this year has been really tough. Do you think it's going to have an impact on people who are starting their careers as fully qualified GPs? Do you think there's going to be any lasting fallout from this for people, you know, with the stress, with the way they've been taught, the way they're having to learn? impossible for anyone to say that they're going to come out of this you know completely unscathed or unchanged by what's happened i think some people will choose to have taken what's happened and sort of see see the positives but i think some people who've been through some you know what has been a really stressful time um to varying degrees for everyone might actually feel that they didn't get to enjoy and i suppose take advantage of being a trainee that much in that sort of final year but i suppose general practice as it was um, we won't have, have, have experienced that. It depends whether this is the new normal. If this is how things are going to be, then we've had a great, uh, you know, a great induction into it. We've had a bit of a baptism of fire, and actually, we'll be pretty, pretty sort of well versed in in how to, to to deal with general practice as it is in this environment. But I suppose if there's an expectation that we're going to go back to the way general practice was, I don't know whether we will or, or won't, and I don't know whether I want to or not. Then, then no, then, then, then we haven't really been that well prepared, but not through anyone's fault, because obviously this is the environment that we're working in. Undoubtedly, this will have an impact because everybody's training has been affected. Um, and there was a model that we had that was producing people that felt confident. Um, but I think that, that there's opportunity to pick those skills back up. And I think it's confidence rather than competence that's really been affected. Um, and you can build that. Um, but I think there's a, re- I do have a real worry. We have a big attrition rate in first five. Um, and if people that feel like what they're doing now isn't what they signed up to, because they did some, I had a really nice GP placement in F2 um, where they were seeing loads of patients and they felt really integrated into the community and really got to deliver good continuity of care and relationship-based care. And now what they're doing is sitting um, triaging urgent lists for patients that they haven't seen before and managing an awful lot of risk. Um, and if that's not what they feel they've signed up to and it doesn't suit them well, I think that we really, we risk people um, struggling with that um, and stepping up to first five. And I think there's a real, uh, there's a there's a need from the college and others to really support that group. Um, like with everything in GP, it's going to be variable, but I think the impact will be longstanding. Um, hopefully there's going to be enough support out there that we, that we don't lose people from what is a really valuable um, career pathway. Thank you to Adam and Sophie for talking to me. Before we move on, I just want to flag that we have a wealth of resources for GP trainees on GP Online, including some useful recent articles on preparing for the recorded consultation assessment and tips on remote consultations for trainees. You can find a link to all of that in the notes for this episode. So finally, we've just got time for our regular end of the show good news. This is the part of the podcast where we aim to highlight some positive stories from general practice. So if there's anything that you'd like to share about work your practice is doing, which we can mention on the podcast or write about on the website, please do get in touch. You can email us at gppodcast at haymarket.com. But for this week, Luke is going to tell us about a story we ran on the website this week about vaccine hesitancy. Yes. So the good news for this week is about an increase in vaccine confidence. Confidence has been low, particularly in some minority ethnic groups, but there has been a steady increase in this, um, at least in part thanks to the efforts of local GPs. The government's third report on COVID-19 health inequality shows that vaccine confidence has steadily increased across the population as a whole since December. Um, perhaps the biggest shift um, in vaccine confidence is among people um, 
uh, of black ethnicity. So vaccine confidence in this group has increased from 49% to 70%. Um, so it's a huge step in the right direction. And although hesitancy rates among this group are still the highest, the government report sort of emphasised the positive changes that it's seen and actually listed a few examples of where GP-led sites um, and their initiatives had made a big difference. Um, so one of these was a vaccination bus in Crawley, which I interviewed, I think, a couple of weeks ago. Um, so it's been stationed around various community locations, um, one being a Hindu temple to um, primarily increase uptake and... Um, almost make it easier for people to go and get that jab. Um, another example uh, is just an individual GP, so Dr. Fazana Hussain, um, who was praised for her efforts to personally ring people on her list who were eligible for the jab but hadn't yet um, received one or, or come forward for one. I uh, just wanted to say something about the bus in Crawley. My dad is actually a patient at one of the practices who are behind the vaccination bus there, and he's been telling me for ages what a brilliant initiative it is. And I think it's made a real difference in helping to reach people across the community to make sure they get their jabs. Well, that's it for this episode. Don't forget you can keep up with all the latest news affecting general practice from our website at GP Online. Thank you very much for listening and thanks to Nick and Luke. And a big thank you to Dr Sophie Lomley and Dr Adam Thomas for speaking to me this week. We'd love to hear what you think about the podcast, so please do get in touch with us on Twitter at GP Online News or by using the hashtag TalkingGP. If you've enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to rate us and subscribe to Talking General Practice from wherever you get your podcasts. We're back in two weeks. See you then.